Hi, and welcome to Software Defined Talk. I'm Craig Box. And I'm Adam Glick. That sounds familiar. Actually, Adam, it's a clean room re-implementation of a song I haven't heard in over six months. Feels like longer. Anyway, our friends at Software Defined Talk have kindly let us gatecrash their show for the week. I think we're supposed to call it guest hosting. After all, they call the show Software Defined Talk. It's all interface-driven. Is this the part where we're supposed to get to the news? You'd be surprised. I was supposed to write out what happened at KubeCon, but it turns out not a lot happened, yeah. There's some great new relevancy features in the Armo security platform, I'm told, but then there was nothing else for a couple of months. <laughs> Feels a little bit like generative AI has sucked up all the oxygen from the room. Did you ask ChatGPT to write that? As an AI language model, I don't feel I should be forced to answer this question. <laughs> in your ongoing game of Carmen Sandiego, are you back in the UK for a while? I am. Did you make it to the Glastonbury Music Festival? Adam, I'm over 40. I can't go sleeping three nights in the tent just to see bands from the 1980s. <laughs> what do you mean? I do it as time with my family just for the joy of it. You catching any of it online at least? Yeah, that's the great thing about to being in the UK is you can watch it all on the BBC. I watched the Guns N' Roses set, and in fairness, I am thinking about going and seeing Guns N' Roses this week. It'll be uh, probably the same show as I saw 10 years ago. They haven't exactly put a lot of new music out since, like, 1990-whenever. <laughs> True enough, but their first album is absolutely killer. It is. So you and I have talked about there's, like... If, if you haven't listened to Appetite for Destruction in the past couple of weeks, I've been listening to Mr. Brownstone. That riff is awesome. Like, totally a, a great trip down memory lane and just amazing music. I love the idea that it's so influential to you that you should listen to it every two weeks. If you have that in your calendar. <laughs> right. Yes, right, right there after, like, dinner with family, you know, time communing with Axl Rose and Izzy and uh, Slash and Steven Adler. The whole, the whole group just getting together. And Duff. Don't forget Duff. How often do you do Dark Side of the Moon? <laughs> uh, I don't. I leave that to you, actually. One set I will recommend that you catch if you have the opportunity, especially if you're in the UK, you can watch the whole thing I play. It was Rick Astley, who put on a surprisingly good main stage performance. You're never going to give him up, are you? I am not, Adam, and nor should you. Shall we get to the interview? Let's get to the interview. David Heinmeier Hansen is the co-owner and CTO of 37Signals, the company behind project management software Basecamp and email software Hey. David is famous for being the creator of Ruby on Rails and infamous for his recent opinions on cloud computing and Kubernetes. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me on. You're a famous remote worker. You're originally from Denmark. You're in Copenhagen as we speak to you today. You started out online running a Danish gaming website and community called Daily Rush in 1999. What was the game? It was actually all games. We covered PC games, console games, everything. And that was actually, I think, the third gaming website that I had gotten involved with, but the most serious one, the one that was an actual business. Before that, I had run a number of other gaming websites all the way back to, I think, 95 was the first one I put out there, which was about console games. It was all in Danish. Um, Daily Rush, though, was... Kind of my real entrance to programming as well. I helped build part of that system. This was my first major system in PHP. I was really interested in games when I started working on it. And at the end of it, I was really interested in programming. Was there a game that particularly inspired you to get involved in that? Or was it more about the, the business, the community? There was a game. It was the Quake series. I was a huge Quake fan. I played Quake 1, Quake 2, and... 
ran a fan site for I think two and a half years in anticipation of Quake Three. Literally. You would not expect that there would be that many news on a game that wasn't even released yet, but there was. Quake 3 had a whole community of people who were really interested in it, just even in Denmark. It was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. It, one of the most pivotal games for me, I played so much Quake, and Quake 3 in particular. I still uh, absolutely love that game. It's such a shame they never made a Quake 4. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think this sort of the first-person competitive shooting uh, genre just pivoted over to the Call of Duty stuff to um, Counter-Strike, which was the one that came out right around the same time as Quake 3 and is still going strong. I don't even actually know if actually people are still playing Quake 3. I saw a competitive match not too long ago from, I think, 2016, and it is incredible the amount of skill that's evident in people who've been playing that game for 20 years. What happened after Daily Rush? What made did you decide to move on from that? And you also uh, famously moved on uh, past PHP as well. Yeah, so after Daily Rush, I realized, you know what? I like uh, programming more than I like video games, or at least somehow that was the switch that happened. I had always been interested in programming as a means to an end because I wanted to build these gaming websites. And then I built this major community tool. We had all the forums. It had a content management system. It had basically everything that we're still building today. Um, inside of this platform, and I just really enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed working with other programmers who were better than me, and I enjoyed improving my craft of programming. I never truly really loved PHP itself, but it was a wonderful entrance for me to the world of programming. It was so easy to get going. PHP, I think still to this day, it's very hard to beat the idea that you just drop a file into a directory, and boom, it's online. There's nothing to configure. It just goes. I think PHP is just incredible in that way, and I credit PHP with getting me into programming at all because if I had had to set up a J2E application server back in 2001, I would never, ever have gotten going with programming. So I believe the story goes that uh, you helped Jason Freed with his PHP homework, and that's how you eventually became business partners at 37signals. That's pretty accurate, actually. So 37 Singles was founded as a web design company back in 1999. I was at the time in Copenhagen, Denmark, doing all my gaming website stuff. But somehow I found the company quite early. Uh, the blog Signal versus Noise was already running in that time. And I just found this company to be utterly curious. The idea I had at the time of a designer was someone who produced Photoshop files for someone else to cut up as we used to say, cut it up into HTML. And here was a design company whose homepage was all words. It was a manifesto. It was 37 bullet points of points of view, um, observations about the industry and design and all these things. I thought, this is just fascinating. So I started following the company. And after having followed the, the weblog for a while, it just so happened that in the fall of 2001, Jason Fried, one of the original partners and my business partner to this day, posted about learning PHP on the blog. 
he had hit an issue. We were still trying actually to find out exactly what the issue was. We thought it was pagination for a while, but then that wasn't quite sure. But whatever it was, he put this question out there. Hey, can anyone help me? This was before Stack Overflow, obviously. This was before ChatGTP. This was before there were any automated ways to really get help with programming. So he just put it on the blog. And I was sitting here. Oh, 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 I know the answer to that. Like, I hadn't been a programmer for 10 years at that point. I barely just learned these things myself, but I knew the answer to that. And I wrote him this long, detailed message on how to do it. And that sparked off a conversation, trading emails back and forth, where in the end, Jason just decided that actually learning PHP sounded like a lot of work. And it was easier just to hire me at the princely sum at the time for $15 an hour to write it for him. (laughs) So that's exactly what happened. That's how we started working together. 2001, I started working with Jason. He was paying me $15 an hour to develop a PHP application adaptation, really, of a FileMaker Pro app that he had made in the 90s, a database for keeping track of your books and who you were lending it to. So that was the first application we worked on together. It was something called Single File. It never really found much of a footing. I think a few thousand people ended up using it. But after that, we started working together on consulting projects. He would do the design. I would do the programming. And that went on for a couple of years until we had the idea of Basecamp. Tell me about how you came to Ruby. I discovered Ruby in 2003, which was part of uh, working on Basecamp, this project management tool we've been building for now uh, 20 years, literally this year. It's the 20th anniversary of when I first started working on Basecamp. And it was the f- one of the first projects where I really had free reigns after a couple of years of, in consulting to pick whatever technology I wanted to use. So I thought, you know what, there are all these clever people in the software industry, folks like Martin Fowler and Dave Thomas, who are all writing at that time about Ruby as a way to illustrate their software architecture ideas in magazines like IEEE magazine. And I was like, this code looks very different from the kind of PHP that I write. It reads like pseudocode. And I had such an attraction to that that I thought, like, you know what, I have to try this out. So I tried it out, started working on Basecamp, gave myself two weeks to see, can I build the basic blocks that I need to create web applications? Can I have a way to talk to a database? Can I generate some HTML? And I think within a week, I was just head over heels in love with Ruby. I realized this was what I'd been waiting for. This was the portal to a new world. I learned about more sophisticated programming techniques like metaprogramming, building DSLs, and all of that stuff. And I just thought, this is it. This is what I want to spend my time on. And at that point, I hadn't played a lot of video games for a while and sort of kind of put that on the back burner and just went all in on becoming proficient, excellent mastery in Ruby. And uh, as part of that journey, ended up building Ruby on Rails as essentially my first major open source project. And here I am again, 20 years later, still working on Ruby on Rails. All that stuff that you mentioned there is the, the first thing you needed to do to be able to connect to a database and so on. Those are the things that Rails automates and makes easy to do. What was it that made you focus on building the framework out to share with other people rather than just the idea of embedding everything together to build an application to host a game site or a project management software, whatever it is you needed to do to to separate those things out cleanly and, and maintain that layer for other people? 
So I think uh, I credit Re or PHP with getting me into programming, but I credit Java actually with opening my eyes to the broader sort of um, scholarship of programming, if you will, the software pattern movement, um, the more ivory tower approach to things where there are actual serious engineers who sit down and think about patterns of software rather than just cobbling things together. And I'd worked at a Java shop for a while and I'd just been learning and absorbing um, these things and I'd been seeing the frameworks they'd been building into Java world. Uh, around 2001, I think it was, Struts came out, which was one of the very early um, web frameworks for Java. And I thought there are so many good ideas here that were just trapped inside such an awful programming language. And I thought if you could take those wonderful ideas, all the software patterns, and you could lift them out of a programming language like Java, and you could put them into another programming language that wasn't as um, arduous to work with, you would really have something. And Already then, when I started working on Basecamp, I had this idea that, you know what, I want to build clean code. I want to build beautiful code. I want to respect the separation. Um, I want to build things with patterns. Um, a, a really strong influence on my work, especially in those days, was uh, Martin Fowler's book, um, Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, which to me was really the Bible for at least the first 10 years of Rails development. It, we went, I went shopping in that, like it was a catalog. Oh, active record, that's a pattern of how to talk to a database in a really neat way that resonates with me. And I, uh, I went on to do that. But originally, I didn't actually start working on the framework. I started working on the application. It was really important to me that um, the tools I ended up working on were extracted rather than invented. I didn't want to invent tools. I've seen enough software that was invented in a clean room by tool makers outside of the context of how it was used. And I thought a lot of that stuff often looked great in examples. And then you try to use it in the real world. And it, mm, it felt like it never had been. It felt like this just beautiful hammer that then when it hit a nail, you could just tell, oh, the waiting isn't right. So I wanted to build hammers where the waiting was right when you actually needed to swing it. So that's what I uh, tried to do with Ruby on Rails. And there was this magical period of about six, seven, eight months from starting to working on Basecamp in the summer of 2003 until we released the first version to the public in February of 2004, where all these things just started coming together. There wasn't a grand master plan up front. Oh, I'm going to build this grand framework and it's going to have this thing and it's going to have that thing. It just was led by what's the next thing I need? Oh, I need this feature in Basecamp. Then, oh, oh, I need a, I need to build the Shinga machine. All right, let's build that and put that into the toolbox as well. So it was a really iterative process, no big upfront design, but still a mission to make this worthy of the Ruby programming language. That was... As soon as I got into, okay, I'm building a framework here, I wanted to build a framework that felt like it was worthy of Ruby, which to me was just this incredible programming language that I was so shocked wasn't already a major hit. By the time I picked up Ruby um, in earnest in 2003, it had very, very little adoption in the web. Um, it, it's been out in Japan since 95 and had a, quite a good following in, in Japan. But the language wall between Japan and the Western programming world was quite high. 
which meant that the Western uh, programming communities weren't really up to it. And I thought, like, this is a great tragedy. Maybe I can do something to alleviate it. Obviously, what you've done has also spawned some imitators, things like, you know, <laughs> even language-wise, Groovy on Grails, for instance. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel good that that helped create something that's part of the methods that people think about and the frameworks as to how they build them? Or does it feel like they're kind of taking some of the, the, the IP? No, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I hate software patents. Um, I think software patents are one of the most destructive forces in the collective uh, commons that we have, and I want absolutely nothing to do with it. I think I look at open source as sort of the counter to that movement. Like, let's share our tools, let's share our ideas. Um, the only thing that bugged me in the very early days were people trying to piggyback on the branding. There were a bunch of things called whatever Java on Rails or Perl on Rails. They're not even alliterative. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, come on. Let's not let's not confuse people about the fact that like Rails is this specific thing. Hey, the ideas are all there. I'm releasing all the code under the MIT license, which is basically the you do whatever you want, just don't sue me license. So you can take all of it. Um, many of the ideas in Rails weren't even mine. It was just my spin on, for example, the active record pattern or something else like that. So huge believer in kind of seeing those ideas proliferate. And I think... I'd like to think at least that Rails had a great impact outside of just the Ruby community because other programming frameworks went like, oh, do you know what? This is now the bar when it comes to developer ergonomics or even developer marketing or full stack frameworks or some of these other ideas that Rails helped push forward. Um, and like, you want to lift all boats. And to me, I had a phase in my evangelism where I was a little bit monocultural in the sense of like, you know what? We should just get everyone to use Ruby. Ruby is such a wonderful language. If we just convince someone that Ruby is the right answer, like they'll all come to Ruby on Rails. That's only because Rust hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there's been these phases, these waves. Uh, Rust is one of them now, JavaScript before it, where there are people who are using it who love it so much that they think um, nothing could be better for the world if everyone just dropped everything else and just went to that one church. And I, I've come to realize what a terrible idea that is because programmers are just a curious, diverse bunch. And our brains are not equipped with the same firmware. They can't run the same ideas to the same level of satisfaction. I'm a huge proponent of object-oriented programming. Uh, I love dynamic typing. If you were to shove me into a statically typed functional programming paradigm, you know what? I wouldn't have a good time. I know this because I've tried. It's not that I can't appreciate the ideas. It's that that's just not where I want to live. And we should not force everyone to live in the same cookie-cutter box. In fact, Ruby on Rails gets to be more itself by the fact that it doesn't carry the responsibility of being everything to all people. So that was a shift in my mindset. It took a couple of years to really get that, that, do you know what? I can't convince everyone of the beauty of Ruby. There are people who simply have a different set of eyes. They cannot see that beauty. In fact, they see something else. They see the lack of static typing. Um, they see object-oriented programming, and they're actually repelled. They're revolted in, in, in some ways that like, do you know what? That's not how their brain works. 
I realized that Ruby was exactly how my brain worked. And there were enough other programmers just like me who responded to Ruby in much the same way. And that was enough. You don't need to convert the entire world to your view of everything. You just need like a self-sustainable tribe. I like to think of it with Ruby on Rails as we reached escape velocity. That actually is important. There's a lot of good ideas that are put into the marketplace of ideas that just don't make it. There's like one person plus perhaps five friends who like they're into it. That's not enough. If you want a 20-year sustainable major open source framework, you need to convince a few more than five people. You need a thousand true fans. Yeah, a thousand uh, true fans. And we've had 6,550 plus contributors who've put code into the Ruby on Rails framework. We've had hundreds of thousands of programmers who've learned Ruby on Rails and we have millions of applications. That's plenty. It's actually plenty by a factor of at least 10. We would be able to sustain what we want to do with a tenth of the size that we have. And then everyone else who, who don't respond to that, awesome. Go program in Rust or in Go or in OCaml or in JavaScript. I mean, this is one of these reasons I love the internet so very much. The internet is one of the very few platforms where you cannot tell what the back end is written in, which means total freedom, total freedom. You can create the next Shopify in Ruby on Rails as Shopify actually did, or they could have written it in PHP, or they could have written it in Go. It doesn't really, quote unquote, matter in terms of if you can build something compelling, people won't care. The end users won't care. So I think that's just, it's underappreciated how special that really is. And we can see it now in contrast to these closed platforms like uh, the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, which total monocultural setups. There might be a way to cross compile things, but like 90% of everyone who who's writing a, an app for the iPhone, they will write it in Swift, they'll write it in Objective-C. They're not writing it in Ruby, so to speak, although there are actually a few people who tried, but I think maybe only about five of them. So that's why I, I have such a strong response to the internet, why it's so precious to me that we keep it decentralized, why we'll keep it open, while we encourage the fact that language development um, can flourish on the internet because it's a development platform that you can try anything new against and you are not hindered by the fact that like no one else wrote something for the internet in that language yet. You've also taken some stances about how things grow and how much they grow, you know, what what is, you know, sometimes we call product market fit. Craig talked about the thousand fans, you know, that you, when do you get that size? Um, but also that you don't care to grow too big. You've written a little bit about that. You moved to Chicago from Europe to build 37 Signals. And you did that as, you know, one of these kind of counterintuitive things. You didn't move to Silicon Valley, which especially in the time frame was, you know, you're doing a startup, you move out there. I know plenty of people, they finish school and their thing was head to the Bay Area. Like that's, that's where you do it. What made you decide to do something, a startup outside of Silicon Valley at a time where that was ground zero for such things? You were already picking up and moving. What drove that? Well, first of all, 37 Singles was based in Chicago at the time. Jason was based in Chicago. So that kind of made it obvious. But already at the point, I had um, a fair amount of, uh, let's just call it animosity to the Silicon Valley model. No. And the reason I had that was I had gone through the copycat version in Copenhagen at the time 
all the startups in Copenhagen that I had been part of coming up through the 90s and in the early 2000s were enamored with everything Silicon Valley, with the funding models, with the development models, with the spending models, with everything. And I saw what that could lead to. And in Copenhagen, as in Silicon Valley at the time, it led to ruin. Um, so my formative years were the dot-com boom and bust cycle, which really vaccinated me against that whole line of thinking. And I wanted essentially nothing to do with it. I wanted to be as far away as I possibly could from venture capital, from growth at all cost. I had seen what it looked like when a company ran out of funding and thought it was going to get its next round and then didn't and started laying off people left and right. And it left a really sour taste in my mouth. So I thought, hey, do you know what? Both Jason and I have gone to business school. We both have degrees in business, Jason in finance and me in general business administration. We know a thing or two about business, just the fundamentals. Let's just do that. Can we do a fundamentally sound business, like one that makes more money than it spends? If we can do that, <laughs> then we won't get out over our skis. We won't end up in this situation where we've staffed to 100 in about five minutes and the whole thing is a mess. Um, so we took a very different route. And I think being in Chicago was instrumental to that, actually. We were far enough away from the echo chamber that it didn't drown out our own ethics and thoughts about how to build a business. And we approached that endeavor from first principles. Both Jason and I had worked from these... Um, get big, quick companies. And we had seen how it deforms and distorts those types of companies. There are a few that make it out in the end as success cases. And then there's about 10,000 times more that fail. We didn't want to fail. I wanted good odds. So this is this other thing that comes in with entrepreneurship is that it's all about risk. Oh, we risked everything and we worked 80 hour weeks and we did all this heroic stuff. I'm like, uh, can I not do that? Can we sign up for a different path here? I'm not interested in heroics. I'm interested in good odds of building a sustainable business where I'd like to work. That's a very, very different model than most startups try to pursue. And we pursued that in Chicago. And when we launched Basecamp, it was as a side project. We still had this consulting business going on that was paying the bills. Then we launched Basecamp. And it was a success for its time right away, yet we still waited over a year before we went full time on it. It wasn't until we could comfortably pay all our salaries and then some that we decided, okay, this pivot to becoming a software company is now not just feasible, but secure. And that's when we did it. And then even at that point, Basecamp continued to grow quickly. We didn't, not our headcount. For, I think in, we launched in 2004, and by 2007, this was already a multi-million dollar business. I think we had about six employees. So the whole path was just almost the exact opposite of what the playbook from Silicon Valley would tell you to do. Hey, you have traction. Pour some gasoline on that fire. Get it as big as possible, as quickly as possible. And we thought like, but why? Like the number of customers we have, we can service with the team that we have. In fact, at the time, not only was Basecamp taking off, we were launching a new product every year. So in 2005, we launched uh, essentially Notion about 10 years before Notion called Backpack. We launched Slack about 10 years before Slack. It was called Campfire. Um, both of those ideas were way too early for their time. This is the other part of business you learn when you deal with these ideas. It's not 
enough to be good. It's not even enough to be right. You have to be good and right at the right time. Mm-hmm. And for some of these ideas, we just weren't. For Basecamp, we totally were we were good, we were right, and we were at the right time. So that continued to grow. And we still had this tiny team. It really wasn't until um, the company was quite huge by revenue and customer size that we were even up into the 20s of, of employee count. And the whole way through, all this Silicon Valley stuff is happening. Like Web 2.0, all the, the, the resurgence after the dot-com bust that kind of happened starting, let's say, 2005 through 2010. Everyone was just going crazy, right? Money was just flowing. We had, I think at one point, 45 venture capitals show up and knock on our door. Hey, take our money, take our money, take our money. And we were like, no, no. We're going to do something else. We have something that's working here. We're having fun. No one gets to tell us what to do. Um, We can do all the things we would never get permission to do. That's enough. And we just kept doing that for now 20 years. And this is the other thing that just boggles my mind is that even if you were doing all of this just purely for commercial reasons, right? Like you want as big a success as possible. Do you know what? Running a a highly profitable software company for 20 years that compounds like it's pretty good i couldn't ask for a better exit if you will and i haven't had to exit i just had to stick around and collect the check every three months (laughs) you talk about the people who came and knocking on your door offering investment one of those people was jeff bezos the founder of amazon and he famously did invest in your company what came of that relationship yeah, that one was a really was a really fun one because the first thing we did when <laughs> Jeff's team showed up were be a little bit impolite, a little bit uh, dismissive, <laughs> to say the least. Um, it's a bold move. And it wasn't until I think his team came back the second or the third time where we're like, okay, this is Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, Amazon is growing in exactly the opposite way we are, but that is there's something interesting here. There's something fascinating. Let's at leave least have a call, have a chat, right? And when you're used to talking to partners at VC companies, I mean, nothing against them, but they're of a certain ilk type, stereotype even. Then you talk to Jeff. He's very different, very different, very different thinker, very different approach, very different everything. So just that contrast alone was like, oh, huh, this is interesting. But really, we don't need the money. We're profitable. We've been profitable the whole time. What are we going to do with more money? Sell more books. Yeah, we could perhaps sell more things. But already that time, we're like, I don't believe in traditional marketing, so we're not going to burn it on that. I don't want a sales team, so we're not going to burn it on that. What are we going to spend the money on? Well, he came with a, with a pitch that was like, what if you just keep the money? Can I just give you money? And then like you and Jason just keep it. And we're like, huh, well, <laughs> say more. <laughs> Keep talking. So this ended up being a quote-unquote investment that wasn't an investment. Zero dollars went into the company. A hundred percent of the proceeds went to Jason and Mai's bank account back in 2006. He bought secondaries directly from us at a completely ludicrous valuation. A, essentially, I mean, I could say this now because we've laughed around it enough time. A total fuck you valuation, right? Like a, a go away, we don't need your money type of valuation that when we talked to his team, like they were laughing at us because we were so preposterous in what we were asking for that they were like, well, I mean, that's cute. That's funny. But Jeff is never going to go for that. Well, Jeff went for that. Was he trying to impress someone? I think he was just having fun, and the money to him, even at that time, didn't matter. 
right? This was the other thing that was a different dynamic. He was not a venture capitalist. He was not looking for some sort of return. He was just having fun, finding interesting founders that he wanted to spend time with, learn from, be involved with. We were one of those. Um, and the funny thing is, this turned out to be a wonderful investment. We've given Jeff his money back, I think six times, maybe more now, and he still owns the stake. He still gets a check. Whenever we cut one for ourselves, we sent one to Jeff. It's been a phenomenal investment for him. But at the time, it looked preposterous. It really did. Has he taken you to space yet? <laughs> no, I'm still waiting for that. I, I do want to get a cowboy hat, and I do want to get some boots, and I, I do want to float. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd love to go to space. That would be awesome. You've said that marketing is one of the most important things that you do um, in your role at 37 Signals. How does that relate to your not believing in traditional marketing and especially uh, the topics that you choose and what you write about on your blog, which uh, for anyone listening, if you're not following and not reading it, it is totally worth the read. I, I found so many interesting ideas from it. To me, marketing is everything we do. Every single time we push out a new feature, every single time I say something in public, every single time we respond to a customer uh, support ticket, all of these impressions where you're having an impact on someone else is an opportunity to leave a good impression. And that to me is the high point of marketing, leaving a good impression. So I take that incredibly seriously. What we have not done a lot of over the 20 years is just buy a bunch of ads. Now, the f irony here is we actually, after 20 years, at the beginning of this year, thought, do you know what? It'd be fun just to try. Let's just try some traditional marketing tactics. And we did buy a bunch of ads and we did try different things. And the results were kind of mixed. And, and then I think to some extent because of that, but, but also because of the success we've had with the opposite path of it, we like eh, cooling a little bit of that. Fun experiment. This is the other thing. I mean, I'm a huge believer in, in the half-life of facts and the half-life of opinions. If you're in business for as long as I've been for 20 years, you'd be a fool to think that every single position you took over 20 years is still the right one. So you should continuously test your assumptions, your premises, your arguments against reality by doing sometimes the opposite of what you believe. So that's kind of what we did on, on marketing. But our broader strategy, our long-term strategy has always been to out-teach the competition. If anything, that really sums it up. That everything we learn in the course of running our business, building our business, we will share. And this started basically right after we launched Basecamp. So we launched Basecamp in 2004. And in 2005 already, we were putting out a seminar called the Building a Basecamp, where we invited, I think, 40 people to Chicago, paying $1,000 a head to hear an eight-hour seminar explaining, hey, here's all the lessons we've learned over the last 18 months, right? And we just kept that on. And that's what... Um, read the, the books. We've written four books. Getting Real was something we self-published back in 2006, a book I still think holds up very well to this day. And then with a major publisher, we've published uh, Rework in 2010, Remote Office Not Required in 2013, a book that suddenly became very relevant during the <laughs> pandemic. And then finally, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work in 2018. And then everything that I do disappearance, my writing on the blog, um, our own podcast, all of these things we do, we do in service of marketing by being helpful, useful, interesting, funny, illuminating, 
all of these things entertaining even all of these things that would leave someone with like hey do you know what i can i can relate to that or i learned something they might not buy from us right away i've heard from uh, a good number of customers who are like i've been following your stuff for 10 years i never bought anything but then one day Gmail just pissed me off. I couldn't find my emails. And I went, you know what? I need a new email system. And I thought, hey, the guy with the Hey t-shirt that I've been listening to on a podcast, I'll go to Hey.com. I'll sign up for his system. And I love it. So that's the sort of conversion timeline we're working with sometimes where there's literally like a 10-year distation. That's the long game, definitely. <laughs> that is a very long game. And I really, I believe in that long game. I don't, I hate whenever we get into the realm of micromanaging the metrics. We've been playing that game a little bit as we dipped our toes into traditional marketing, where you really just like, oh, can you move it like a quarter of a percent? And like, ah, I don't want to be here. I want to be in the place where we put good stuff out into the universe and we trust that the universe will pay us dividends. You've mentioned Martin Fowler a couple times in our conversation. I was wondering if you see yourself as being influential to multiple generations in the same way that he has in the work that you do and the writing that you do. I mean, I should only aspire. I think Martin is a, a far more rigorous thinker than I am. He is far better at distilling sort of these grand questions of software architecture into these patterns that will last literally decades. I don't fancy myself as having that level of intellectual rigor. But I do have the same burning desire to help improve the state of the art in software development. That has absolutely been the driving force behind Ruby on Rails is to popularize really good ideas. I don't claim to originate very many good ideas, but I do claim to dig them out if they haven't reached prominence, putting them in a form that more people can understand and appreciate. Sometimes it's taking a book like The Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, finding the patterns I thought were the best ones, and then just making them available to someone who weren't even going to read the book. That book does really sound like a page turner. It's incredible. I've read it maybe five times. And every single time I do, uh, I learn something. It is in the trifecta of books that I hold as the holy grail of software development books, it is The Patterns of our um, Enterprise Application Architecture by Martin Fowler. It is so, uh, Small Talk Best Practices by Kent Beck. And then it's the refactoring book by also Martin Fowler and I believe uh, Ward Cunningham. Those three books, I took 90% of everything I know about software development in the software patterns sense of it away from those three books. I've read, I've read a lot of software books since. Um, all the books I've read since filled the last 10%. So if anyone out there listening, working in software development has not read those three books, um, they're absolutely pivotal. The last one, if I was going to add one more in, it would be Domain Driven uh, Development um, by Mike Evans. Uh, Evans, at least. So those books really had a big impact. I was never that kind of writer. I have a more, let's say, uh, free-flowing writing style that's a little less exact, but try to convey more perhaps of the passion and poetry of software development to an audience who can resonate with that. I consider myself not a software engineer. And to create those kinds of books, I think you really do need to be a software engineer. I'm a software writer. That's what I do. 
I love writing software. I love digging into the, the prose and poetry of it, which is why I like Ruby so much. And why actually for the longest time growing up, I thought I was never going to be a programmer because I thought programming was all about math. And it really was for the kind of programming that I was interested in originally, which was game programming. Trying to write uh, collision detection with a software writer mentality. That doesn't work. No, no, you need to polygons, overlapping polygons. That's the kind of stuff you need to do. That wasn't for me. I found my niche in software writing and creating IT systems and domain models and that high level of abstraction. Um, so that's where I try to leave my mark. Have you ever written an inverse square root equation algorithm in Ruby just to prove that you could? No, no, I really haven't. And it was funny. One of my best... Is this an interview? <laughs> Out of 65,000 tweets I've done, one of the ones that resonated the most uh, and got the most sort of viral attention was a tweet. I said, hi, my name is David. I don't do um, whiteboard puzzles and I couldn't do, uh, what was it? Um bubble sort on a whiteboard if you asked me to. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could possibly reason my way to it in a clumsy way, but if you put me in front of a whiteboard and you subject me to the kind of leak code um, examination that is so prevalent in software development today, I would flunk with a capital F every single day of the week. That's just not my forte. I stand on the shoulders of giants. I am not a computer scientist. We need computer scientists. We need people coming up with better sorting algorithms. And then let me do my uh, high-level IT stuff. Recently, the machines have come up with a faster sorting algorithm, so I don't even know that we need computer scientists anymore. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll all be out of a job soon enough. Um, I will just be ever so thankful that I lived through the era of... of being able to experience this. But at the same time, I also think this AI hype is, it's hard not to feel like it's completely overhyped. I think I've lived through four attempts of no code. I remember back in the 90s, I think it was called 4GL, um, mm -hmm. like fourth generation languages. Oh, the business analysts will be able to write everything themselves. And we just had a big no code phase in like 2014, 15, I wanted to say. Oh, all the analysts are going to write their code. Now we have it again. And I've uh, used ChatGTP a fair bit, and it's, it's very helpful. I find it like a more efficient stack overflow. It's not writing my systems. Could that happen mm -hmm. one day? Possibly. Could it also be that I get a chance to write on Jeff Bezos' rocket to the moon? Totally possible. Well, you've um, got his phone number, at least. I'll, uh, I won't hold my breath for either of those things to happen just anytime soon. You started building SAS 20 years ago. Back then, there was no public cloud. Before we talk about how you got out, how did you get in? You're right. So when we started in 2004, we were on a single um, co-located server, a Celeron 4, 2.2 gigahertz with 256 megabytes of RAM. That's what we launched on. It was $349 a month from a small hosting company called Tilted in Chicago. We ran on that server for a year. We build up at least a thousand customers on that one server. This is something I've referred to many times over the years when people complain about Ruby being too slow. I was like, have you tried running it on a Celeron processor from 2003 with 256 <laughs> megabytes of RAM? Because that's what we did back then. And it was plenty to build a business that is what it is today. But um, we since moved into other co-located um, setups, and then we finally got our own hardware. But somewhere along the line, too, 
um, this, this cloud business came up. And originally when it did, I was really excited. I don't have any special affinity, or I didn't have any special affinity. I perhaps cultivated it recently for owning hardware. I thought, like, do you know what? I just, I just want the, I just want the output. I want my application running well and it's fast. And uh, however we can do that easily, great. Well, I think uh, Amazon S3 came out in what 2007, eight? I forget. Six. Yeah. Six. And I remember seeing that and go like, whoa, that's pretty cool. But we ran the numbers at that time, and it kind of didn't add up. And then a few years later, I think in 2012, we ran the numbers again, and it still didn't add up. We could buy storage uh, cheaper than that. So I always went like, do you know what? I'm, if we're going to give this to someone else, at least it needs to be cheaper. Well, it became that. I think in 2014 or maybe 15, we moved all of our um, storage for all our applications off. I think the last thing we were on were either Clever Safe or Isilon, these two different enterprise storage systems. And we moved it all into S3 and it was great. We could not do it cheaper ourselves. Like we did the whole gigabyte per dollar calculation. We're like, wow, the cloud is finally delivering on a promise of uh, economies of scale. And at that point, like also economies of use and all these other things. So wonderful. A few years later, we started using EC2. We started dipping into more and more of it. And I bought the whole spiel. Running your own servers is like owning your own power plant. Unless you're in the power production business, why are you owning your own power plant? And I went, yeah, that's right. I'm not in the data center operations business. Why should I own my own hardware? I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And we spent years retrofitting our applications to go into the cloud, to get them containerized, to do all this other stuff to get into the cloud. And we started moving more and more stuff into it. And around 2017, 18, the plan was to go full cloud. I mean, all this stuff was just legacy. We hadn't refreshed in our hardware. It was just all cloud, 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 cloud. And then the curious thing happened was we started moving more things into the cloud and all the benefits they kept being just without reach. We kept thinking, okay, so it's going to be much easier, right? So we move this stuff into the cloud. We're going to need far fewer people. We can do more with you. No, no, somehow still operating a service in the cloud, whatever, it required the same amount of labor. And then it went like, and also, why are these bills so high? Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, we're configuring things wrong. We need to optimize more, da-da-da-da. We stayed in this delusion mode for years thinking, do you know what? The problem is us. We're just not trying hard enough. We're not architecting it correctly. We're not optimizing our spend. We're not doing all of these things, right? Until finally, I think I saw some bill, I think whether that was, and I just went like, this is crazy. This is just crazy. How can it be that much? And by the time that realization set in, we were spending millions every year on the cloud. So somewhere along the way, last year, um, this had been brewing for long enough. I said, okay, enough. No more. We've tried for years. We can't make it work. We can't make it cheaper. We can't make it faster. We can't make it easier. What are we getting out of this cloud business? Um, we're putting all our eggs in the basket of a handful of monopolists. We had tried the Google Cloud for a while and had an absolutely catastrophic time of that. Um, this was during the great network outage of, was it 2020 or something, where whatever this whole topology fell apart and we had the worst outages we had had in 12 years, I want to say. We were 
offline for 1.9 hours straight. And the, that level of sort of hopelessness you get when you're offline for nine hours and all you can do is like refresh the ticket with your Google provider was not a good impression. Anyway, I, even that was enough, amazingly in retrospect, for me to lose faith. We're like, well, it's just Google are too new to this or whatever. We got in on the wrong thing. Let's just go to Amazon. They've been doing it for, for longer. So we jumped over to Amazon, ran on Amazon for years. And even if we didn't have the, the outages, we still had the fundamental lack of being able to, to get something out of it, to get a return on the investment of moving into it. So last year, we made the commitment getting out. And then at the beginning of this year, we're like, okay, we're getting out for real. We've been trying to like, how do we get out? Um, we were running Kubernetes in AWS and we thought, do you know what? The easiest way to do that is we can just keep everything Kubernetes and we just run Kubernetes ourselves. Then we started playing with setting up Kubernetes ourselves and the operations team we had went like, I don't know if I want to be responsible for controlled plane updates. Um, and uh, this was even before like that huge Reddit out it and, and all these other things. We were like, do you know what? Running Kubernetes um, is complicated. It's a very sophisticated system. And clearly it's been put to excellent use by the likes of AWS and Google and others at that scale. We were not that scale. We had a 10-person operations team. They were not comfortable running that ourselves. So we thought, do you know what? We'll get a partner to do it. We'll find someone to help us run it. And we wasted several months thinking that was a viable path until they sent us the proposal with the prices in it. And we're like, hey, listen, the reason we're getting out of the cloud is because we feel like we're getting ripped off. This service uh, enterprise uh, support contract here is, um, is not looking too different. So at the beginning of the year, we went like, all right, clean slate. What do we need? Do we need all this stuff? Do we need Kubernetes? We're running a, a, a suite of services that are not constantly changing. We're not constantly sizing them up and down and sideways. They're kind of predictable. I like containers. I like Docker. I like a lot of this stuff. I don't like the magic. I don't like the reconciliation. I don't like the Helm charts. Uh, all the XML are like, giving me flashbacks to setting up a J2E server back in 2001. There must be a simpler way. So that's what we started pursuing in the beginning of the year. Um, I dove head into it, and we ended up writing something called MERSC, a, um, essentially a way to remote control Docker, just plain Docker, not even Docker Swarm, just Docker. Um, in the same way of, uh, of a deployment tool we've been using for 15 years called Capistrano, which is sort of an imperative model where you execute commands. You don't ask for reconsideration between configurations. And now it's about six months later, and we've moved uh, nine applications almost fully out of the cloud, and we are almost ready to declare victory on our exit. I'd love to tease that out because there's two different topics there that, that I would love to kind of cover separately. One is the move out in terms of the infrastructure at the kind of the, the core base hardware layer. And then the other is the move out in terms of the change at your software platform layer. So we kind of take the first one of those and said, you, you had some moment where you mentioned like, hey, the cost was just like, hey, something's not right here. You've been very public about that. If people haven't read your blog post on it, definitely something people should go read. 
what took you down that path? I mean, you've been more detailed than I think anyone else uh, that I've seen publicly talk about it. Of you have a set of principles of how you've talked about it. You've uh, literally published the receipts in terms of like your cost estimations and what what you're spending on those pieces. Like, how did that become big enough? And I assume you didn't just did you start with like, hey, this just seems like too much. We need to go, or did you go, hey, like, let's take a look at these numbers. Okay, these numbers don't work. Now we should go. Like, what? What drove you down that path and how did you make that decision? Because that's a pretty big decision to decide that you're going to pick up and extricate from one environment to another. It really was. There was two stages to it. First, there was a seed that I planted internally, I think maybe two and a half years ago, maybe more now, where I went, do you know what? I don't like the direction the internet is going. The internet is going in a direction where more and more of it is owned by big tech. A small handful of companies who are controlling the infrastructure, that is the AWSs and the GCPs of the world. Um, one of the things I remember reading was, was this post from, I think, 18 maybe. U.S. East 1 was down, right? And there was this entry list of websites that were also down with it. And I went, do you know what? This is not what DARPA designed, when DARPA designed this thing, it was meant to be decentralized. If the Russians took out D.C., Los Angeles and Alamo and whatever would keep running. The fact that we've given up on that beautiful design and we've deposited so much of the Internet with a single company feels wrong. But that was still one of those just early inklings and a philosophical point. Yeah, I don't like what this is going. Then I had more... Um, direct interactions with big tech when we fought for our lives with the launch of Hey. Um, Apple wouldn't let us be in the app store and we were looking into being wiped out with a new product. We'd spent millions of dollars and years of development on and I went like, this wouldn't have happened on the internet. You can't do this on the internet. On the internet, I can own my own servers, connect them to bandwidth and no one can tell me to get offline. Well, short of pissing off the NSA maybe or something else like that or CIA. <laughs> but no private company can tell me that I can't run my business on the internet. I want to get back to that. So we had this seed planted that we got to get off big tech. We got to get off big tech. We got to show by example that it's possible to live and prosper in a modern way, not in a looted way, not moving into the forest and I don't know, hunting our own squirrels, but living in civilization, building real applications for real customers and being competitive outside of big tech. But then what tipped it from philosophical thinking into practical action was, was these bills, was just the economics of it and realizing this is just so unreasonable. I was looking at the bills that we were paying for Hay. We launched Hay fully cloud native. It was direct into the cloud. Hey, never lift on our own hardware. And some aspects of that was a positive experience. Hey, had this incredible launch in part because we had that epic battle with Apple that gave us so much attention um, that we needed more hardware than we thought. And the cloud is really good at that. If you suddenly need 10 times as much capacity as you thought, boom, you click two buttons and you have it. That's not true with your own hardware. But that was like one moment. And then the rest of the moments happened. And when I ran the numbers, it was just so self-evident that if you rent, you will pay more than if you buy. Like that's really the fundamental truth of the cloud. It is someone else's computer and you're just renting it. 
And we've been running a business at that point for almost 20 years. We could look in two years into the future and go like, you know what, I could buy a thing and I could amortize the thing. And what would it then cost if I owned the thing versus if I rented the thing? And I went like, you're kidding me, right? Why is it so much cheaper? That's when I got mad. I really got mad. I got pissed, actually. I got pissed and I felt like I was being ripped off, not economically, but like philosophically. When we moved into the cloud, when we did that move, the calculation on Amazon S3, I went like, yes, Moore's law is kicking in. Economies of scale are kicking in. We can't do things as cheaply as the cloud can do. When I ran the numbers again in 2022, we're like, why can I make my own chicken so much easier than, or cheaper than someone who's producing 10,000 chickens? There should be some economies of scale and those savings should be passed on to me, right? I had the mental model in part because Jeff was an investor and I remembered Jeff uh, immortal words for Amazon.com being um, my competitor's margin is my opportunity, right? I thought that was the mental model for AWS. I thought that they would buy all this hardware at such incredibly low prices and they would just make it up on volume. Plus they're factory farming and you can make your own artisanal chicken at home. <laughs> well, that's true and that has its own appeal and I do like that. But it, it, usually that means luxury, right? Usually that means you're gonna pay more in labor or otherwise. When it came to AWS, the, the, the final, the, the second shoe dropping was looking at the financial results. And the fact that AWS is the single biggest contributor to profits for Amazon in total, that the profit margin for AWS is about 40%. This is a business that invests billions and billions and billions into new hardware and new data centers. How can they run at 40%? Do you know who's paying for that 40%? I, me. I am paying for those 40%. I don't want to pay for those 40%. And in fact, I mean, a lot of services, especially at our cost rate, right? Like we're not the Netflixes of the world, so we don't pay Netflix rates. We pay 80-person company rates. <laughs> They're quite a bit higher, I should say. The margins aren't 40%. They're probably damn 80. So just a total realization. Do you know what? No, 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 no. The philosophy doesn't line up. The econ um, economics don't line up. We can do this ourselves and we can show people the way out. We can out-teach the competition when it comes to this. This is why we've been so public and so detailed and so transparent. Because the cloud uh, machine, the cloud marketing machine has been so insanely successful that it won me over on a story that was bull. And I went like, do you know what? If they can sucker me, I'm a pretty skeptical person. Um, no wonder that so much of the rest of the industry have bought into the idea that owning your own hardware is somehow passe. That's something that uh, weird people stuck in the past are doing. Um, so I went, do you know what? We got to change the narrative here. We got to change the entire conversation. We got to reset it. We got to reframe it. And we will do that by example. I can't do it by just talking. I can't go like, oh, uh, cloud is bad. Yeah, okay. That's not very convincing. Look, 3.2 million, that's our cloud budget for last year. Here's my estimate. We're going to save 1.5 million a year starting like now. That's $7 million over five years. That's the kind of numbers where people go like, oh, uh, 
I would like another seven million over the next five years. That's concrete. And that's what we need to, to at least reset. Again, none of this means that cloud is bad or cloud doesn't have any usage or whatever. I've come up with plenty of cases where it works. It does not work for us. It does not work for a bunch of people if they run the numbers. And, and we need to get some sanity back into the conversation. You've mentioned that, you know, it's not that it do doesn't work. It just like there's use cases. I think many people struggle with that question of what are the right use cases? And people have either kind of done the, oh, I'm, I'm holding on to it all or I'm shoving it all up there. And there's very little of that conversation, the nuance of what makes the right sense. And if I recall correctly, with some of the things that you're doing with, hey, and such, some of those pieces are still sitting in the cloud versus other pieces that you're looking at bringing on. How do you make the call as to where should things sit? What makes the most sense from a, a logical standpoint? So for us, we're moving out everything, but we're not moving everything out at once at the same time. What we're moving out first is all the applications. We won't leave anything of hey in there, but what we are leaving until last is S3. It was the original service we got into. It is the most cost efficient one. It's the hardest actually for us to replace at a profitable rate. We have eight petabytes of data. That's still a relatively hard problem. I can't fit eight petabytes of data on like five servers. It takes like 40 and you got to spread them out geographically in, in this way and so on. It's not actually that easy of a problem to solve. And S3 makes it exceptionally easy to just deal with like, hey, even if we had 80 petabytes or 800 petabytes, S3 would allow us to do that. And at a cost, at a premium that doesn't feel as offensive as the rest of it. But everything else, all the compute, all the search, all the databases, all the caching, all the redises, all of that stuff is coming out. And the funny thing is when, when people are saying like, well, you're just getting out because you're not using cloud, right? Like you should be using more of the managed services. Then you'd see more of the... Dude, first of all, we've tried, all right? Like this is not our first rodeo here. We're not total noobs at it. We've been using Aurora. We've been using all the managed services. Those are the most expensive ones. Those are the ones that are killing us. Like seriously, when I looked at the, the bill and I saw, do you know what? We're spending over half a million dollars on hosted Elasticsearch. I went like, what? Do you know how much hardware you can buy for half a million dollars? Like <laughs> you can buy like five pallets. I know this because we bought pallets of servers. Like how many physically fit on a pallet if you spend half a million dollars? It's a lot way more than what we needed for search. Is that the unit of measurement of servers these days? Yeah, it is. And I love that unit of measurement because I had a picture taken when our pallet of servers arrived at the data center from Dell. And I was just giddy to see like um, this stuff returning. So we are pulling everything out. That might not be the quote unquote right thing in all cases. But I also do think the whole hybrid thing is a little oversold in the sense of being it like, oh, yeah, it's like also relative. I don't think it's actually that relative. To me, there are two main use cases where you should go straight to cloud. One is you're just starting out. You have a completely unproven idea. You do not have product market fit. You're playing. You might be out of business in six months, in 12 months, in 18 months. Are you going to invest in stuff that takes three years to amortize? Of course you're not. Don't be silly. Use the cloud. Use the cloud in a way where you don't get locked into the cloud. Don't go with all these um, um, sort of functional setups where you're carving up your app in a way you can't extract or run locally. 
don't do that, but run in the cloud. Okay, fine. The other one is if you have incredibly spiky performance needs. E-commerce is the one I usually use. I should talk to Toby. I'm a good friend with Toby at, at, at Shopify, and I'm not actually sure like what the margin actually is. But let's just, the example is if you have a few days a year, where you see 50 or 100 times the load you normally see, you're not going to buy 100 times as many servers just to have them sitting around doing nothing. That was the original pitch of AWS. It was Jeff going like, hey, why do we have so many servers when we only need them for Christmas and Black Friday? Can't we just like rent them out the other 362 days out of the year? That makes perfect sense, right? If you have a SaaS company like ours that has relatively stable usage you can somewhat predict uh loads you have enough money in the bank and enough product market validation that you can think two years into the future i'd actually go as far as to say the majority of those businesses they should own their own hardware one thing that i've heard and there was a, a long discussion of this online when you posted that first post about this uh, and then I saw a lot of people talk about what about the managed side of pieces of like, if you're doing Aurora, there's a bunch of DBA work that's essentially happening for you. There are people that are managing those pieces. How are you handling that? Do you actually have people racking and stacking servers? Are you kind of back into a, the game of getting a data center or how do you handle that to really do a like for like financial comparison? Yeah, no, that's a great question because there's a lot of misconceptions. People think when I say, we want to own our hardware, that we have like a bunch of people employed who are plucking RAM sticks in and out and or that we're building a data center. Some people are like, oh, you're building a data center. Do you know like power? What are you talking about? Jeez, just if you're in this industry, spend about five seconds looking into how things operate. It starts with someone spending $400 million creating a state-of-the-art data center, and then they rent the space out. So we rent space in a data center. What we rent is really three things. We rent some floor space, we rent some power, and we rent some bandwidth. We've never set foot. Actually, that's maybe not true. Maybe once, like 10 years ago, someone set foot in one of the data centers. I've never set foot in any of our data centers. The vast majority of people we have working at our company have never set foot in our data centers. We rent the space, and then we have one of the data center white glove services. We use someone uh, called Deft. They're awesome. When we need a new, a new pallet of servers arrived from Dell, as it just did um, about a month ago, right? That pallet sits in the loading dock of the data center. The deft crew runs down there, unboxes everything, racks it all up into the cabinets that we have, connects the, the cable in the back, and voila, we see some IP addresses come online, which is actually very similar to how the cloud works. It just has a little bit longer of load times, if you will. It takes a few weeks rather than a, than a few minutes or a few seconds to get online. So that's the one part of it. We don't touch the hardware. We buy the hardware. We have someone install the hardware. We rent space and... Um, and connections. Now, there's still a software layer like Aurora does some backups for you, does a bunch of things. What we found was what they do for us at our scale does not save entire jobs. There's just not enough. There's still a bunch of things. In fact, and sometimes it creates more work. Aurora, for example, famously will just send you an email like, hey, uh, next Friday we're doing an upgrade. We're shutting off your stuff. Be ready. And we're like, uh, okay, I guess we're working next Friday because that's when the version <laughs> upgrade is. Um, thank you, uh, Amazon, for that notice. That's very kind of you. So what we found was the fundamental premise that these managed services were going to save us so much time that it was going to 
allow us to do way more with, with a smaller crew or the same number was never true. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not work here. We run Orchestrator for MySQL. We have to set up some um, backup stuff and so on. There is work, absolutely. It's not like it's completely uh, free lunch in that regard. But the work, sort of the comparison, like how much does it cost, it is so ludicrously out of whack, right? Like we could have multiple people on payroll just dedicated to running our databases and set them up and we'd still be spending less money. And we don't, not even close. We will set up these databases and then we will mine them as we have to mine everything, just like we had to mine the cloud. So I think the reality of the differences between operating on your own hardware and operating in the cloud, once you reach a certain scale, again, we're not talking about a startup that has like 100 users, right? We're talking about a company like ours that have 100,000 plus customers and millions of users. At that scale, the economical savings of the cloud they're so hard to see that literally I've not been able to find like one one role we could save in our company by running in the cloud instead. So this is the other question. You could flip it around. Now we're pulling all this stuff back, right, from the cloud. We're pulling it onto our own server. Do we need a bunch more people? Are we going to double our operations teams to be able to do that? No. We're hiring zero new staff to be able to run on our own hardware. I'll send in my resume. <laughs> In versus, uh, yeah, versus versus the the cloud setup. So I think there's just a, there's a lot of misconception here, which is why I'm trying to be so specific in our transparency about the bills, what we're spending, what what costs, because people don't even have like the orders of magnitude correct, and that's what we need to be able to make good decisions. You need to at least have the orders of magnitude correct. We've talked here a lot about building versus buying and renting, obviously, thrown in there. You talked about the administration of the automation software, which was Kubernetes when you were running on Amazon. And you've published the quotes that you got from some enterprise Kubernetes vendors who said this is how much that they want to run it. And we've, <laughs> all of a sudden, we're at the other end where you've completely written a brand new tool to solve this problem yourself. Why was there nothing in between? It's such a good question. And I tried hard not to write something new. I didn't want to write something new. First of all, I should also say that what I've been writing is much the same as what I do with Rails. I'm not inventing anything. All the hard work was done by the fine folks who came up with Docker. I am still in awe of just how good Docker is. I'm not talking about Docker Swarm. I'm not talking about Docker or anything enterprise. The core sort of running containers operation is excellent. The documentation is superb. I am just, wow, um, so good, right? What I did was to build just enough glue that we could just use that and have a zero downtime deploy setup, rollbacks, all the kind of ways you have to operate a SaaS company using Docker without any of the config reconsideration paradigm stuff. Um, I looked at Docker Swarm and... Um, I'm sure there's some people who are making that work. To me, that felt like it was of the same ilk as Kubernetes or whatever, just a bit simpler. So I thought, I just, I want to use the simplest thing possible. I just, like, I don't get any satisfaction out of complexity. I get great satisfaction out of boiling complexity away and leaving just this residue of intrinsic things we have to do. And what gave me such great satisfaction was realizing that all we needed was Docker. We basically, what I built was like Docker plus a handful of 
automated shell scripts. This was actually funny. When, when we announced that, all right, we're not going to use Kubernetes, I had a couple of Kubernetes renders write me, and they were like, what? So you're just going to build a bunch of shell scripts? You're like, first of all, what do you think is inside the Kubernetes box? In fairness, that's how <laughs> Kubernetes started. Exactly. And this is how all software is. We're all just tickling Linux. Um, so it's not like there's um, sort of some magic here that you uh, can't somehow come up with yourself. And I mean, to be fair, also in my 20-year software career, I built a couple of tools, right? So I, it's not like I'm not afraid of building a tool. So that's what we did. And the proof was in the pudding. I built just enough sort of stuff in six weeks that we were confident going to production. Six weeks. So again, I'm not building some huge cathedral here, right? In six weeks, I could build enough automation that we had faith and confidence that we could operate this without Kubernetes, just on Docker. And also, just the full picture here is we do use KVM as well. So we buy these huge servers, and then we slice them into VMs with KVM, and then we deploy applications with Docker onto them. But I wish I hadn't had to write this. But at least now that I have, the next folks coming after us who want to exit cloud or want to run on their own server, they won't have to. I do wonder why you did have to build this, because there are other tools in the container orchestration ecosystem which have hung on. Nomad from HashiCorp is one, for example, which I feel you can sort of squint at it and say it does reconciliation and works roughly the same way Kubernetes does, as I understand it. But maybe it's a little bit less administration. But then you've also talked about it being like Capistrano, which is the tool that you used to use for doing Rails deployments. Did you think about extending that to support containers? Was was there no one that was doing anything in the way that you're talking about? Why is this a lost art? I think, to me, part of this pivots around the word you were using, orchestration. I find whenever that use is invoked, way too much complexity plays along with it. I don't need to orchestrate anything. I just need to deploy a new version of my app. It is not so complicated to need this fancy word. And whoever uses fancy words like orchestration, I am highly skeptical out the gate. Did look at Nomad as well. I didn't want to get in on a commercial thing. So for me, I wanted pure sort of open source. I understand it. I, don't, I, I didn't like the paradigm too. We talked earlier about how I liked object-oriented programming versus functional programming. I like the imperative model of executing commands. I don't like state consideration. I don't trust it. It feels, ironically, because this is a charge people have made against Ruby and Rails many times, it feels too magic. And this is, of course, a completely subjective uh, statement, right? Capistrano is essentially a way of um, sort of executing commands over SSH. It just connects to all the hosts, and then it just runs through a bunch of SSH commands. And, um, and MERSC is actually built on the same technique. In fact, it's built on the same SSH kit, which is a gem that Capistrano is built on in Ruby, and MERSC is built on as well, where you can connect to all these uh, hosts over SSH, and you can just start executing commands on it. And what I needed to do was execute a bunch of Docker commands. Oh, put this up, configure it in this way, take it down, do the swap, do da-da-da-da-da. No orchestration. It's just not that fancy. It's a, it's a, it's a fiddle. It's not an orchestra. I just needed like a harmonica, a sort of mouthpiece harmonica to be able to do my stuff. That's all the complexity. It could fit in my pocket. I can't fit the New York Sympathy Orchestra in my pocket, right? So that's kind of the scale, the weight of it. And I think the proof is in the putting in that like, you know what? I could write this in six weeks, right? 
Like it just wasn't that much because Docker already gave us like 95% of everything we needed. Um, so this whole thing of like, oh, don't reinvent it. No, reinvent it. Reinvent everything. If you can reinvent something from scratch in six weeks, you should do it. Purely for the exercise of understanding it. I understand so much. I've really got a master's class in Docker trying to build that automation for it. And I'm ever so thankful for it. If it had turned out that I couldn't build something good or it didn't work or it didn't scale or whatever, great. I spend a six weeks immersive course onto Docker and I would have understand all the orchestration complexity far better. I just didn't need to. We could stop there. And clearly it has resonated. So on GitHub, I think um, it's actually one of the fastest growing slash most popular projects I've ever launched in terms of sort of adoption, in terms of um, getting contributors, getting GitHub stars, all these other vanity metrics. Merce just took off right away. That I think is high praise coming from the author of Rails. Rails is obviously much larger now, but in terms of trajectory, how quickly it got there, Merce got there mm -hmm. very quickly. So I think there really was a demand for that kind of model, the imperative model, the execution of commands model versus the sort of state reconsideration model that there are just people like, you know what? My brain works like that. I trust my servers better if I can actually, as Merce does, it outputs every command. There's nothing hidden. It'll literally show you. The, I run this SSH command now, then I run this one, then I run this one. The whole thing with all the parameters, you could copy and paste straight from it and you would get the same result. Your community-focused roots uh, clearly coming through in how you're doing this. As you look at that, and obviously there's been some traction, you've seen it really growing. Do you see the contributor community growing? Because kind of first, you know, people go to, you know, go to GitHub and like, oh, what's a project that'll solve my problem? They pull it down, they use it. The kind of the next stage in growth is, hey, do people start to say, hey, here's a bug, here's a fix for it. Do you start to get PRs? Is there a contributor community growing around this as well? There really is. And this was one of the things that's so fascinating. I found that the easiest way to build a strong contributor community is to push something out that's not actually that good or complete. So I went, <laughs> I went built in public like right away with Maersk when it was barely functional um, and got a bunch of people who were like, that's broken, that's broken, that's broken. And I was like, yeah. It is. Thanks for reporting. Thanks for fixing. We've had a ton of people already contribute to it. Clearly, people are using it in the in the wild. Um, and it's just wonderful to see. Now, I would actually like to see Maersk be one of those kinds of projects that's like done. I don't want this to grow 5,000 tentacles into everything. I would like to see it end up in a version that's like finished at some point in... Um, in not like an unlimitedly long future out in the past. So... Um, hopefully we can get there. We can keep it simple enough that it just sits on top of Docker. It doesn't do any of the hard work. I want to stress this again and again. All the hard work, all the like engineering, that's done by Docker. And they do a phenomenal job of it. Um, I just automate a little bit on top. It's a remote control, right? Like, I don't know if you ever bought one of those uh, third-party remote controls back in the, whatever, 90s to control multiple things. You're like, do you know what? The, the amount of knowledge you have to have to build one of those is a tiny minuscule part compared to coming up with like an LG plasma screen, right? I'm building a universal remote and Docker is building the plasma screen. That's the division of labor here. I really do miss my Harmony remote. I, I'm still one of those people who wants to be able to to use remote controls rather than have a smart internet device that just does everything. But uh, there's few vendors who are willing to solve my particular use case anymore. I'll find one at a thrift store and send it to you, Craig. <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's, I will appreciate that. When Maersk is finished, will you put the vowels back in the name? 
<laughs> um, we might actually have to change the name at some point. We'll we'll see if there's um, uh, any action on that front. Um, I just, to me, it doesn't even matter. And there's almost some historical precedence here. The first version of Capistrano was actually called Switch Tower until we got a cease and desist from a company in the U.S. who had the trademark for for the word Switch Tower. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens. I don't really, I don't care that much. It's, it's also one of those things. The first web page for the project was just literally me going like, open HTML tag, open body tag, open H1 tag, Maersk, deploy anywhere, open paragraph tag, blah, no styling, no nothing, vintage 1993 aesthetics. You really don't like high-level tools and people doing things for you, do you? <laughs> Since we've made things prettier, but I thought it was just in keeping with the spirit we were trying to do. Just keep it simple. It doesn't have to be fancy. People will find it anyway, and it doesn't matter. Isn't there, a, there another uh, uh, Maersk out there that moves containers around? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. That would be a pure coincidental uh, comparison. <laughs> In the five values that you published guiding your cloud exit, one of them was you, that you serve the internet, that the, your business owes its existence to the internet as you remember it perhaps 20 years ago. It's something we've touched on a lot throughout this conversation. I feel that in the last couple of weeks, that vibe, if you will, has been coming back big time in the form of what's going on with Reddit. I wonder if you have any opinion on what they could do or should do to uh, bring things back around and uh, win win community back on their side. <laughs> I have all the opinions. And the opinions are that uh, Reddit, I believe, is now a company of 2,000 people. Uh, when I go to Reddit, it is absolutely in no shape, way, form better than the company that ran with like 12 people or whatever it was when I started using Reddit. Like, I even use old.reddit.com, which is the original design, because I didn't find the new one an improvement. Um, no, no one did. So I, I... Exactly. Bingo, right? It's actually... Um, better, better ad metrics, better tracking, better conversion, marketing. Come on, David. Yes, and these are the things where I just like, you know, it's tragic. Um, one of the things I'm so thrilled have not gone through that process is Craigslist. I believe mm -hmm. Craigslist is still less than 40 people and it looks exactly like it did when it launched in 1996 and no one cares. It's still great. So I'd like more Craigslist on the internet and less like whatever Reddit is today. More sort of just like I'm happy staying the size of a company I am. I'm not trying to go public. This is of course the root of all this evil is that we have to show these fantastical growth numbers. So we've got to cram ads into everything. We've got to cram spyware into everything. And I just went like, you know what? There's another version here. I know it because I saw it. I lived on it. It was great. And we should bring it back. And there are, I think, enough rebels out there that we, we could. We could bring it back. So I want to, if, if I ever stop working on a commercial sort of endeavor with 37 Signals, what I'm going to dedicate the rest of my time to is arming the rebels when it comes to internet tools. We need to have more original Reddit. We need to have more Craigslist in our lives. We need to have more of these platforms that have that funky, weird beauty of the early internet. Now, to some extent, you got to be a little careful with nostalgia because it colors everything so rose-colored that you sometimes forget that not everything was puffy and great and, and wonderful. Um, but when it comes to like the internet, I, I do think things largely used to be better. 
certainly around communities. I do not think Reddit has become a better place on the internet because it's now this massively funded operation with 2,000 people rushing to get to an IPO with whatever it takes. That is usually a bad recipe for users and the internet as whole. Maybe people will go back to dig. Or slash dot. We'll, we'll have to see. Dig broke <laughs> itself on exactly the same pursuit, right? Dig was one of the original ones. We had Kevin Rose on the cover of Business Something magazine, two thumbs up, going, this kid is worth $40 million, right? That's the ethos. That's the one we have to sort of pry open. We have to rewrite these um, venture capital rules of how to run things. Now, Venture capital has brought us a bunch of things and contributed to the internet, but we also need an alternative to that. And we need sort of, yeah, more of the vintage vibes. And I think we can get them. I think there's something in the water. And I think the next generation, they're not going to repeat the same mistakes. They're not all going to want to be Mark Zuckerberg. We've talked a ton about technology here and uh, all, all that you've done, but technology is not all that you do. Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, uh, you do spend a little bit of time in a car and uh, recently were a part of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which you've uh, been doing for a number of years. I wanted to ask, how do you spend 24 hours driving in a car and still stay in the same place? Yeah, we just go around in circles, man. Um, the good thing about a 24-hour race like Le Mans is at least I have two co-pilots. So it's not me in the car squarely for 24 hours. But this particular race this year was actually kind of funny because I did not get into the car until half the race was done, which meant I had to do half of what was left of the race, which was six hours every two hours. I, I slept, I think, about two hours out of 40 um, that is a really fascinating physical, mental challenge that I just absolutely adore and love that it only happens once a year. I would not want to do that every weekend. It is crushing. And here uh, a week after, I'm only barely recovered. But absolutely love race cars. I love the optimization challenge of eking out every tenth of a second in every single corner. It shares a lot of similarities with software development in my mind. It is this closed loop, this closed system. Um, it's a little bit like performance um, measuring if you're running benchmarks and you're trying to eke out either more memory or more clock cycles. That's what it's like to drive on a track. And then it also is this incredible portal for flow. All my favorite moments in programming have had this nature of finding flow where you forget time and space and you look up and you think 20 minutes have passed and actually it's been two hours and you've really cracked a hard problem. That is just the, the mana of programming for me. But it's very um, difficult to reliably just tap into that. In a race car, it's not difficult at all because unless you're in a state of flow, like, you know, you could die. Like that has a really effective way of focusing your attention on the next corner to the absence of everything else. And to me, that really is what flow feels like. You're not thinking about dinner. You're not thinking about your to-do list. You're not thinking about tomorrow. You're not thinking about anything else but the task at hand. Or the fact you've only had two hours sleep. Or the fact that you've only had two hours of sleep. You're just thinking the next corner. How do I make the next corner and the next corner? I've, I've definitely been up all night writing code, but rarely has uh, any line of that code in, involved the possibility that uh, my life could end because of it. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we should be happy we're not writing mission control systems for astronauts or pacemakers or anything else, the criticality of that. 
Or race cars, actually. There's a lot of software in race cars. And sometimes that software does go wrong and it's, um, it's not so great. I love dealing with information systems where usually the worst thing you can do is you can lose some data. That's terrible. Uh, you might lose some money. That's also bad. But you won't kill anyone. Yeah. David, it has been so wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you again. You can find David at dhh.dk, where you'll find links to Twitter, LinkedIn, and his blog on Hey. Thank you very much for listening. If this is your first time listening to Software Defined Talk, they're not all like this, but they're all good. So please do consider subscribing. If you want to be the first to hear when Adam and I finally give in and start doing this again, please subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find at craigbox.substack.com. If you want to tell us how good it was to hear from us again, you can find Adam on LinkedIn as Mr. Adam Glick. And you can find Craig on Twitter as Craig Box. If you want a Software Defined Talk sticker, all you have to do is send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and Brandon will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. We used to send out stickers. Do you remember those days? I still have some. Will you still send them out? <laughs> send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and Brandon will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. Point taken. Until next time, thanks to Brandon for letting us guest host, and thanks to you all for listening. See you later. Take care.